electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Love that. Nothing to like about it, but go and buy it. Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson. And here's what's ahead for a busy hour. A $2 trillion bet as the president unveils his infrastructure plan. We're going to break down uh, the one sector that analysts think will benefit no matter what ends up in the final bill. Plus, what's the biggest risk to the market right now? Higher rates, a COVID resurgence, higher taxes. We've got some answers from our exclusive CNBC stock survey. And Goldman Sachs wants in on the Bitcoin craze. Details on its potential plans to offer digital assets. But before we... Dom Chu is going to join us. But, John, I have a present for you. Here, Can I look take at it? that Can I take lovely... It? plant that we have here all for you. This is it. you on the market. I'm going to take this plant with me right now. It it might be a way to symbolize infrastructure or digging (laughs) or something like that. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to hold this plant awkwardly because Tyler Matheson just gave it to me right now. However, we're going to focus on the greenness in the markets. I'm going to take this and put this over here on the side right now. The Dow Industrial is green like that plant at one point. Dow Industrial is up 52 points here. The S&P up 32 and the Nasdaq Composite far outperforming up nearly 2% on the day so far. 240 point gains, 13,286 the last level there. So keep an eye on those Nasdaq technology and communication services type stocks. We're also watching an interesting thing play out right now in those infrastructure plays, awaiting President Biden's remarks on that long-awaited infrastructure plan. We've heard about it from many presidents before, but many of these stocks had spectacular runs over the course of the past year to where we are right now. I'll note that United Rentals is down right now, but it gets a gold star because they hit record highs earlier today. Vulcan Materials also hit record highs, but you'll notice we've lost some steam here. So there's a question about whether or not Going into this big announcement, there's a little buy the rumors, sell the news type situation. I would notice that U.S. Steel here is still up 2% on the day so far. So some of those resurgence plays in infrastructure. And then Walgreens, a Dow component, an earnings story, better than expected profits. Sales fell shy of expectations. Like Rite Aid, they didn't sell as much cold and flu medication this past season. Still, though, they upped their guidance for the full year. It's up 5%. Down component up 22% for the year, and we are seeing some real strength there. So keep an eye on Walgreens Boots. Tyler Matheson, I no longer have your plant, but I will send things back over to you. <laughs> you handled it beautifully. Thank you very much, <laughs> you Dom. All right, President Biden will unveil the details of his $2 trillion economic and infrastructure plan uh, later today. It is his second major spending initiative following the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill that was passed earlier this month. According to the White House, some of the key provisions of this new bill include more than $600 billion for transportation upgrades to roads, bridges and other mass transit, another $300 billion to expand broadband access, upgrade electrical grids and improve drinking water, and $400 billion to help care for elderly and disabled Americans. 
Officials say the package would be funded by the president's Made in America tax plan, increasing the corporate rate to 28 percent from today's 21 percent, and measures to curb offshore profits by raising the global minimum tax. But it's not a slam dunk at all to pass through Congress, while some Democrats say it will help the recovery by creating jobs. Republicans argue that more spending will send our economy heading in the wrong direction and saddled with more and more debt. For more on how all this could play out, let's welcome Stephanie Miller, managing director at Fiscal Note Markets, and Brian Gardner, chief Washington policy strategist at Stiffel. Uh, welcome to both of you. Uh, Stephanie, let me begin with you. What are the odds that the president gets not all of what he wants, but even most of what he wants? And what are the odds that he's going to be able to pay for it in some form by raising taxes? High, low, middle. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he's going to get a lot of what he wants or none of what he wants. And I, I do think a lot of what's out today, the paper that we've seen so far, Whatever he announces should stick mostly to that today. It, in some ways, really is the starting gun of a long process that will involve negotiations. Who he's negotiating with, whether moderate Democrats or actually Republicans, will shape where this is headed. Um, but at this point, it really seems like Democrats are planning to do this on their own. And so if that's the case, then they can probably get a little bit more closer to what Biden actually wants than if they brought Republicans in, but probably not that close. Uh, the corporate tax rate, for example, Joe Manchin, you know, a needed Democratic Senate vote has said he doesn't want to go above 25 percent. So already Democrats are negotiating with themselves. Well, the, the, the proposed, Brian, uh, corporate rate here would be, I think, 28 percent up from 21 percent today. So there obviously is some wiggle room there. Those numbers can be moved a little bit uh, on a sliding scale one way or another. Um, do you think any Republicans would vote with uh, President Biden and, and the Democrats on on what you see as the bill right now or the package right now, including tax hikes? So depending on how they move it through Congress, uh, Tyler, I think that on the, if, if they're if they're separate but kind of co-joined in some way uh, on the tax package. No, I mean, Republicans may be um, in disarray and, and, and fractured. But there's one principle that unites Republicans, which is opposition to tax increases. So I, I don't see any Republican, especially those who voted for the 2017 Trump tax cuts, that they're going to reverse course and raise taxes. That, to me, that, that's, that's a non-starter. On, on the spending side, the infrastructure bill, there is bipartisan support conceptually. But funding and priorities are going to tear the two parties apart. I think the, majority, the, the uh, Republican leader has already indicated he's not probably not going to be on board. They might be able to get a couple of Republicans. Can they get to 10 and then get around a filibuster? Probably not. So that means they're going to go do reconciliation and do a party line, go it alone, as, as Stephanie alluded to. And so that probably tilts it more towards what the president has kind of outlined. Do you think that, uh, Brian, let me finish the thought there, if they do go without wonking out here on Washington speak and reconciliation, <laughs> though I know we'd all love to. The, 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 the idea then would be that the Democrats would have to go and remain completely united on this. Fifty Democrats, including Senator uh, Manchin of West Virginia and other so-called moderate Democrats. Um, uh, do you think that the Democrats could hold together uh, to push it through on Reconciliation. 
So it becomes much tougher than what we just saw in the yes. COVID relief package. The politics are totally different, Tyler. So the answer is probably, but not definitely, yes. You've had a couple of centrist Democrats, especially up in the Northeast, who have suggested they will not uh, support a package unless they get a, a uh, reinstallment of the state and local tax deduction. So that, you know, and I'm just using that as one example of where the politics of this get really tough. If, the, if they can't get together on salt, let's say, and reinstate it, and those centrists start to hold out, what's going to get them back on? You know, does, mm-hmm. does, do, does they have, do they have to increase the price tag then of, of the overall package? Are there throw-ins right. on, on certain proposals? There's going to be, so the, the point is, yes, they can do it on reconciliation. They can stay united, but the, the, the negotiations are going to be much more intense, much right. more complex than what we saw in February and March. Stephanie, let me turn back to you. You know, the, the, we know what the parties say about tax hikes. We know that the Democrats are open to the idea of raising taxes on the uh, wealthy above, uh, I believe it's household incomes of 400000 or more, and on corporations going up to 28%. We know the Republicans oppose those tax hikes as a matter of principle. What does the country say? Do voters, what do voters say here? Are they opposed to the idea of raising taxes on the 400,000 and above people? Are they opposed to the idea of raising the corporate tax back to uh, 26 or 28 percent? What do the people say? So, I, yeah, I love that question because that actually does inform what Republicans here in Washington will do. And I, I think I'm alone on an island on this, but I, I don't think it would be impossible to get Republicans to support a corporate tax hike back up to 25. Now, you know, mind you, that's way lower than it was before 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And I also think that there's changes or fixes. Maybe they could position it to the international tax regime to make big companies, you know, pay their fair share. That populist message, it even, you know, making wealthy people pay their fair share, that really resonates with very gettable voter base that has oscillated between voting for Trump in 2016 and then sort of creeping back over to Biden. I think that's the strike zone for Republicans to go after ahead of the, even the midterm elections next year. Forgive me for interrupting you, Stephanie, but yeah. doesn't that if someone if a Republican did that, doesn't that guarantee that they'd be primaried? So this is and same with Democrats, though. I mean, there's primary on both sides. I think both parties are in a sort of parallel disarray when it comes to the um, pressures from the outer Mm -hmm. edges. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think there it's hard. um, And I think Democrats don't seem to be interested in in seriously negotiating with Republicans. But if they were, I think Republicans could be amenable. Interesting. Interesting. I don't even know how to process that. Stephanie, thank you very much. Brian, always great to see you, sir. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you very much. We'll see you again soon. Well, the $2 trillion infrastructure investment plan could help rewire the semiconductor industry in the U.S. Chips are the building blocks, of course, of the digital economy, powering everything from electronic devices and cars to 5G infrastructure. Certain companies ideally positioned to uh, gain a boost from silicon nationalism, making things here in the U.S., the likes of Applied Material, KLA 10 Corp, uh, KLA Corp, LAM Research, Teradyne. Uh, they all stand to gain from a hard reset when it comes to semiconductor investment. Joining us now is Vivek Arya. He's a research analyst at Bank of America Securities. Vivek, I, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Uh, you argue that in that that 
basically any way this cookie crumbles uh, of infrastructure spending, winners will heavily tilt towards semiconductor companies, semiconductor manufacturing, equipment manufacturing companies, and the like. Why is that true? Uh, Yes, thank you, Tyler. I think there are two aspects to this. First is we are in the midst of unprecedented digital transformation, that it's not just going to be a bridge or a road or broadband. It's going to be a smarter bridge, a smarter road, faster broadband. And second aspect is the competition between different countries to be more self-reliant and self-sufficient in semiconductors. You know, we think self-sufficiency in semiconductors is as important as energy independence has been in the last uh, century. So both the aspects of transformation and competition will drive uh, the U.S. towards more investment in semiconductors. And exactly as, as, as you also referred to, I think companies involved in semicap equipment, uh, like the ones you mentioned, companies involved in 5G infrastructure, such as Marvell or Broadcom, or companies that are in the smarter industrial, like Texas Instruments, or automotive industries like NXP, On, and Cree. Uh, semiconductors are the basic building blocks of this uh, next generation transformation. Before I come back and get some of your, your favorite stocks in these various spaces, let me ask you a question about 5G. I have a phone. It happens to be made by Samsung that is a 5G-ready phone. I, I, I don't know what that extra G is going to do for me as a consumer. So my question is, is 5G and its potential built more on what it can do for consumers, individuals like you and, and, and me, or is it what it's going to do for businesses and their processes and their uh, ability to deliver or create? Sure. So 5G will have uh, three different uh, applications uh, or something new to it. First of all, it's just faster mobile broadband, right? Every generation has bought us another step up in speeds. So if 4G was able to deliver a few tens of megabits a second, 5G can take that up by a factor of 10. So faster broadband. And every time there is more we can do within our smartphone, there is a whole ecosystem of app developers who can Mm -hmm. take advantage of it whether it's gaming or AR, VR, or other applications. Second aspect is that 5G is unique in that the spectrum can be carved up for other applications, Mm -hmm. whether it is uh, in autonomous cars, whether it is uh, connecting a lot of cameras and other sensors that will be used by connected industry. Um, So 5G has multiple applications, but the key is that today China is leading in 5G. Last year, they had 70% of the global deployment of 5G base stations. So that's why we feel that as the U.S., through the new C-band spectrum auctions that were done recently, or Europe, as they start to catch up, that's really a positive for uh, semiconductor companies who are involved. It's a question, really, of of speed. And and I have to say that the 5G on on the company I use is... Intermittent. It's not everywhere, number one. Number two, so it's a question of speed. It's also a question of the connected world. Let's go to some of the stocks that you think will benefit most under this growth uh, tailwind that you see coming for semiconductor, semiconductor equipment makers. Give me two or three names. Sure. The top one would be applied materials. Semicap equipment is our preferred area of investment uh, this year. They are the ultimate, quote-unquote, arms dealers to all the digital transformation. The second area that we like a lot is, is automotive. Uh, NXP semiconductor is, is a key in that. And then the third is 5G infrastructure. And Marvell is, is the one that we really like because it is exposed to almost every base station vendor that will help us uh, exploit all these new uh, spectrum and the auctions that have uh, gone on. 
so those three would be the ones that uh, would be on the top of the list. Very clear answer there, Vivek. Thank you very much. Vivek Arya of uh, B of A Securities, thank you for your time today. And coming up, nearly half of the participants in CNBC's stock survey say there's one thing that tops others as the biggest threat to the market, and we will tell you what it is and break down all the numbers. Plus, Apple moving higher today as UBS upgrades it to a buy and hikes its price target. This as the stock looks to break a two-month losing streak. That's been rare for Apple. The details are ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. everybody to the exchange cnbc out with its quarterly stock report and investors seemed to be most concerned about interest rates when asked what the biggest threat to the market is right now 47 percent said higher rates 29 percent said another covid wave and 24 percent said higher taxes joining me now with more on rising rates and the impact on stocks is jim mcdonald chief investment strategist at northern trust jim uh, welcome back Uh, investors seem worried about rising rates. If I'm reading you correctly, you say hooey. I I mean, maybe not hooey, but you do say that you expect rates on the 10-year to fall toward one and a quarter percent from the current 1.7 percent level. Why do you see that? Well, so first off, Tyler, our expected range is one and a quarter to 175, so a central tendency of, of 150. Investors concerned about rates we do think are justified, but they're also very much influenced by the fact that rates started the year on the 10-year at 1%, and they've gone straight up to 175. We do think those higher level are going to bring in some new buyers. We think inflation expectations have probably peaked, and that that means that we've likely seen the short-term highs in interest rates. So you are not. So let's tie it. Let's work our way back. What what I'm hearing you say is you are less worried than the market is about incipient inflation, even potentially in the face of, a, of another two, three trillion dollar uh, stimulus package that would flow through. Exactly. We do think there are secular pressures on pricing that are keeping companies from being able to raise their prices. Our recent discussions with companies in the consumer area indicate they are seeing some pressure on commodity prices, but they're unable to pass it through at the retail level. So we do think we will see the base effect lead to near-term pressure in the reported numbers, but we don't think that that's going to persist. And I think it's really important to understand inflation is not a one-time rise in prices. It is a year-after-year-after-year increase, and we've just been in a 20-year period of disinflation, and we don't think that that's over. Yeah. And you've got a lot of disinflation or deflationary pressures uh, throughout the system. But uh, but let me drill on on one of the things you just mentioned, and that is commodity prices. And I'm thinking specifically of housing and home building. Lumber is way, way up. That price is not that 
price rise is not being passed through to people who are buying new homes or improving their homes? No, I would say that one clearly is being passed through. But when you look at what's going on in areas like food and beverage, mm -hmm. where you've got higher aluminum costs, you've got higher inputs on the food side, the retailers in those spaces are not able to pass that through. So one thing analysts are really going to have to pay attention to here is the companies that are seeing these cost pressures and whether they can get it passed through. Housing is red hot. There is a very low Financing costs, I think those costs are able to be passed through and still be able to be afforded by the end consumer. So if you were to answer that question that we began with, what's the biggest risk to the markets going forward, interest rates, COVID, or t higher taxes, which would you, uh, how would you order that? I would order it first interest rates. Mm -hmm. I would order it next taxes. I think COVID is not a material risk anymore to the markets. We're talking about a fourth wave. We got through the second wave without any confidence that vaccines were on the horizon and the market didn't blink. What are the odds the fourth wave with vaccines everywhere now in the developed world and increasingly will be implemented across Europe where they've been behind? What are the odds that the fourth wave is going to cause a material a decline in the markets? I think it's uh, really no longer a risk. And that must explain why in your typical portfolio, which would be a 60-40 stock versus a non-risk asset blend, right now, as I see it, you're at 68% risk asset or equity and 32% something else, right? That's correct. So it's 32% bonds uh, mm -hmm. and cash equivalents. And so that really is a reflection that we expect a low return environment in risk control assets. We still think that you'll do well in the stock market here. And it also, frankly, is a bit of a hedge if we're wrong on the view that inflation is going to stay contained. And Bitcoin ain't cash, is it, uh, Jim? Bitcoin is not cash. So. All right. Jim McDonald, thanks very much. Jim is with Northern Trust. Good, as always, to see you. Coming up, more positive news on the vaccine front as Pfizer announces its first results in trials involving teenagers. We've got those details coming up. Plus, hopping on the Bitcoin train, curiously enough. Ex exclusive details on Goldman Sachs' potential push into the world of crypto. And coming up on Power Lunch Top of the Hour, we will speak with the Coca-Cola CEO, James Quincy, about corporate America's response to the new Georgia voting law. You won't want to miss that from the biggest company based in Georgia. The Exchange, right back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
right, welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take you through the markets right now. The Dow is higher. At one point, it was up about 106. Right now, about uh, 42 points higher, as you see there, 41.7. Uh, NASDAQ is higher as well, about three quarters, a little more, four-fifths of a percent higher. But the standout right now, as you see, right there is the NASDAQ, up 258 points, or nearly 2%. Sectors, information technology, consumer discretionary, and consumer services are your leaders. Uh, financials and energy are your laggards right now as uh, some of the uh, energy uh, commodities are moving lower. Take a look at some of the movers this hour. Shares of Chewy are higher after beating on the top and bottom line and better than expected guidance. Strong customer acquisitions and spending trends are some of the tailwinds at Chewy. And Harley-Davidson uh, spiking higher after Baird upgraded that stock to outperform from neutral. Baird noted that it was the first time since 2016 that it had rated that stock outperformed. The firm says the company's change in strategic direction were among the positive factors behind that upgrade. And marijuana stocks are rising higher. Ooh. As New York State passed a bill to become the 15th state to legalize recreational use. Let's go to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Tyler. Hello, everyone. Prosecutors of the Derek Chauvin trial are laying out what happened before George Floyd was arrested. Christopher Martin described how Floyd bought cigarettes with what Martin believed was a counterfeit bill and how he looked on with disbelief and guilt as Floyd was arrested. Honda is recalling more than 600 vehicles in the U.S. to replace fuel pumps that can cause engines to stall. Recall covers many Hondas and Acuras from the 2018 through 2020 model years. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has started a hunger strike in prison. He's protesting what he sees and says is a failure of officials to provide proper treatment for his leg and back pains. And in Myanmar, protesters are back on the streets demonstrating against the military coup. France has called another emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council as the death toll among protesters has now topped 500. See how international pressure could end the killings in Myanmar tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Tyler, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you very much. And coming up right here, right now on The Exchange, UBS says no supercycle, no problem. Apple is a buy right now, plus Amazon Backed Amazon backed Deliveroo fails to Deliveroo big time, and there's a new way to celebrate at Robin Hood. That's all ahead in rapid fire. But first, it's time for show and tell. We show the sh chart and then tell the story. Today's chart is Coursera, the education tech company, up 18% in its trading debut on the New York Stock Exchange today. There you see it moving higher. Here's the CEO on why he is bullish on the road ahead. institutions, businesses and governments, and even campuses are now really in need of online learning. It will cost us to build a direct sales force, but that institutional learning where people are learning at work and even earning fully accredited bachelor's and master's degrees while they're working, we think that that's what the future really looks like. Let's catch you up now on a few stories that should be on your radar time today for Rapid Fire. And here with their takes are Josh Lipton, Kate Rogers and Casey Newton, editor at Platformer and a CNBC contributor. Let's start with Apple. It's moving higher today after UBS upgraded the stock to buy from neutral. The analyst says the move reflects a stable long term iPhone demand environment, along with Apple's likely entry into the auto market. 
The stock has lagged the broader market since February as rising bond yields put a dent in some of the big tech names. Josh, let me start with you. Um, Apple has underperformed uh, the first couple of months of this year, basically a little bit ahead from March. It's rare that Apple goes through a slump like this. Uh, How important is it for that company to have this kind of upgrade? And how deeply do you buy into the thesis that this is a company that could be a major player in the auto space? So Apple, um, you know, listen, it is coming off uh, 2020 where you saw this remarkable run up about 80 percent. And there were some on the street who did have concerns. What are the catalysts, Tyler? They were wondering that's going to move this stock higher. I'll give you the, the alternative take. And I think the analyst sort of maps out some of this in the note. The bull take, the bull counter to that, Tyler, is there doesn't have to be a super cycle. What they're counting on is there's just so many people who are in older models. And by older, they say, you know, three plus years. They're counting on there's enough people older models are going to keep upgrading to those new phones with those features. They're faster, they're tougher, better camera. And because they think that 5G rollout really p- picks up speed in the back half of the year, it is why guys like Gene Munster continue to bang the table. Maybe a slow start, Munster says, but he still thinks, Tyler, Apple is your best performing fang name this year. All right, let me, uh, let me uh, turn to, uh, to you, um, uh, Casey, and ask you, do you see a day when Apple is actually an automobile manufacturer or is the more likely path that they partner with an automobile manufacturer and deliver maybe the heartbeat and the brain of an automobile? Well, it certainly seems like that's the way they're moving. Of course, they did initially try to build a car all by themselves in a multi-year project that seems like it had a lot of problems associated with it. Uh, Since then, they have moved into this partnership route. Look, building a car is really difficult. Apple has been at it for a while now. But, you know, maybe the fact that they have been taking such a long time on it suggests that when this thing does arrive, it's going to have a lot of polish on it. So I'm not surprised that some analysts Mm -hmm. are bullish on it. All right. Let's move on to topic number two, and that is the British food delivery company Deliveroo failed to deliver in London's biggest IPO in nearly a decade. Shares down nearly 30 percent on the first day of trading as concerns linger about the company's path to profitability and the regulatory risk around the gig economy. Now, Amazon is one of the company's biggest backers. It owns 11.5 percent of shares after the IPO. What went wrong here, Kate? You know, I think there's a few different things at play, Tyler, but one of the things, of course, top of mind is Uber having to reclassify its drivers in the UK, you know, actually as employees saying, you know, that they are uh, able to get minimum wage, paid time off, things like that, and potential concerns around what that means for other gig economy players. What's interesting about Deliveroo is they're not just food and grocery. They're also in alcohol delivery. They do have a ghost kitchen component. And I know there was uh, a bit written about the dual class structure and that potentially being a turnoff for investors. Again, profitability also a factor here, as it is with many of these uh, delivery companies. But I think particularly in London, in the UK, there's a lot of focus on what happened with Uber and how that may have a ripple effect for some of the other companies operating in the gig economy in that space. Deliveroo of alcohol, uh, uh, Josh Lipton. This has sort of been flopperoo, though, so far. I mean, you can't get around it. If it's going down 35 percent on its opening day amid the hype, this is a problem. And the path to profitability yeah. is the issue. 
Yeah, well, I think there's, it's interesting, Ty. So on this name, you have a few different cross-currents, clearly, that Kate mentioned. So there's questions about labor practices and corporate governance. There is, though, Tyler, also just this broader question when you talk about names like this, kind of these fast-growing names that really benefited during the pandemic. I do think you see investors questioning what does life like, look like for these names, the growth rates for these names after the pandemic ends, post-pandemic, when the world hopefully looks more normal. Just take a, a DoorDash. Take a, that, that example. Look at that chart, Tyler. Yikes. That is down 25% yeah. this month. It's off about 50% from its high. All right, let's move on to the next one, topic three, and that is the alt snacking space. Whatever the hell that means is heating up. There, there were more than 130 deals worth more than $3 billion last year in bioengineered food companies, and more could be on the way as health-conscious consumers look to include more plant-based options in their diet. Kate, you have been following this. I think of plant-based foods like Oatly, the oat milk thing, but I see there is also plant-based jerky products. That seems uh, like an oxymoron, plant, number one. Plant-based. And, and plant-based eggs. <laughs> Lord, talk to me. Eggs, jerky, milk, ice cream, etc. So we asked PitchBook particularly about uh, the plant-based and alt-snacking component of the industry. The jerky market was just under $4 million in 2019. Uh, the analyst I spoke to there said he thinks that that could grow into the, the mid-teens millions for snacking and alt-snacks. There are 140 different companies working on all types of things that we mentioned. Eggs, ice cream, jerky, etc. Fermented protein is another uh, big component here. The big player in this space will be Beyond Meat with its partnership uh, with Pepsi. They're going to be working on um, alternative and plant-based snacks and drinks. So that's definitely going to be something to watch. But the pandemic has kind of accelerated this trend because so many more people were grocery shopping. Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are looking to bring their prices down. So consumers are kind of opening their eyes to the possibility of you know, indulging in those, also looking to get a little bit healthier. And then there's the environmental component that matters as well to people who are looking uh, to kind of put their money where their mouth is with that as well. So a lot of room to run and space to grow there, Tyler. Many, many companies looking at that. Yeah, I, I, am, I am no skeptic here, Casey, because I see an awful lot of people uh, going on plant-based diets for health reasons, for economic reasons, and indeed, as Kate points out, for environmental reasons. How about you? Absolutely. And I'll throw another uh, factor into the mix, which is the rise of remote work, right? Uh, particularly here in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of very eco-conscious people that were getting all of their snacks at work. Now they're responsible for all of their own snacking. So I think throughout the rest of this year, as people are settling into long-term remote work, you're going to see uh, much more snack consumption. And a lot of those folks are going to be looking at snacks like these. I'm using a lot more oat uh, milk on my in, in my coffee, on my cereal, almond milk as well. <laughs> Josh, are you a convert yet? You know, so I'm not, I'm not the guy to talk to about this, Tyler. <laughs> I've had one uh, plant-based meat. Uh, that it was only because I mistakenly bought plant-based meatballs actually at the grocery store. Uh, that tasted like sawdust. So I'm not the guy here. I get it. One question, though, and maybe it's for Kate, is if you raise the profile of these plant-based meals, I wonder, does it raise the profile, maybe the acceptance, Kate, of those other sort of um, alternative proteins? I'm thinking crickets, mealy worms, something, you know, bugs. Big business, Kate. Big business. 
Kate is just smiling. You know, Josh, I'm, I might not be <laughs> the person to ask about eating the crickets. That doesn't seem like something that I uh, would really like to indulge in. But I am with Tyler. I've been using a lot more oat milk and uh, dairy alternatives just in recent years. Starbucks now has me hooked on that. They're working with Oatly as well, that company going public. Um, you know, I think there's just a lot more discussion and awareness around it. And as I said, 140 different companies working on different uh, dairy alternatives, snack alternatives. So that market is just going to continue to grow in the years to come. And right. I think Beyond and Pepsi is going to be a big Let's move on to topic that. four. Robin Hood uh, canning the controversial confetti on its trading app after facing criticism from lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Here, here's how a CEO, Vlad Tenev, responded when questioned at February's House hearing. Confetti falls every time they place an order. They get push notifications. They're encouraged to trade. Um, if a friend signs up, they get a free stock, on and on. Why have you added specific gaming design elements to look like gambling to your app? That encourages more frequent trading. Congresswoman, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, we want to give people what they want in a responsible, accessible way. We don't believe in gamification. On the left, you will see the confetti that the app used to show after users made their first trade. And on the right is the update. I, I don't know that either one of those is going to make me feel better about the trade or not, to be, to be honest, Casey. But I suppose if you're not showing confetti when you sell, which I am told they did not do, you're then, I suppose, subliminally or maybe not subliminally telling people, as Jim Cramer would say, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> right. Well, look, the, the number one reason that people were trading a lot on Robinhood is that it made uh, stock trading free for the first time, right? That's the big factor. But there were things that they were doing around the margins that led people to want to do it even more. I do think showing confetti when people are buy their first stock does uh, give the whole thing a certain slot machine element to it. So I think it was, you know, way past time to get rid of features like these and try to encourage at least slightly more responsible trading among Robinhood users. Do we, Kate, need to protect traders from themselves? In other words, if Congress gets involved and says, no confetti, damn it, because it's going to induce people to, to trade and, and turn this into a game, isn't that a, a rather patronizing stance to take? Uh, I think you could look at it from both sides, Tyler, but obviously Congress pointing out the confetti might be gamification of trading was enough for Robinhood, you know, looking ahead to its IPO to change that and say, we'll use confetti when, you know, our users meet certain financial goals of theirs or things like that to make it less like a game. So they obviously kind of listened and made some yeah. changes around that, given all the scrutiny on the platform. Uh, you know, whether or not it's gamification or, you know, making this fun and games for investors and whether or not they need to be protected, I don't know but I'm the person to answer that. I think you could argue it out on, on both yeah. sides. For Josh, sure. final thought is yours. Yeah, well, I want to be careful here, Tyler, because here's what I don't want. I don't want new online traders to sit, watch this and think, you know what, Josh Lipton, thanks for your insight, buddy. Thanks for your totally unsolicited guidance as you try to save me from myself. <laughs> but I'm actually an adult with my own money, and I'll make the bets like I want to. I don't want to come across as that. On the other hand, do I get how Robin Hood is under a ton of scrutiny and heat right now and thought, you know what, we don't need to be known as gamifying training platforms? And maybe, in Casey, to Casey's point, if you had to kill a feature, this would be the one to do it. All right, folks, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Good fun, as always. Josh, Kate, Casey, we appreciate it.
All right, coming up, another big step toward COVID herd immunity from Pfizer today as its vaccine proved effective in teenagers. We will get the details from their latest study and what it could mean for the economy next. And let's take a look at the markets right now. The Nasdaq up nearly 2%. We were pointing to it just a moment ago. The S&P all-time high and inching closer to the 4,000 mark. Leading the S&P right now, Enphase, Applied Materials, PVH, and Walgreens Boots. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Pfizer says its COVID-19 vaccine is 100% effective in kids aged 12 to 15. The drug maker hoping to get the vaccine authorized for emergency use in that age group before the new school year. Meg Terrell joins us now with the very latest on this. This is uh, this is a little bit personal for me because my son, as you may know, is 15. Well, there you go, Tyler. It could be months away from when a vaccine could be available for him. Uh, Pfizer has been testing its vaccine down to age 12 in that existing clinical trial that it used to test it for older folks. So it is the same dose. And what they found in this group of about 2,200 kids ages 12 to 15 is, as you said, 100% efficacy against COVID-19 disease. And they got that 100% because there were 18 cases among people on the placebo uh, and none for people who got the vaccine. So those are still pretty small numbers, but obviously a very strong result. Importantly, they also saw that it was well tolerated in this age group. They weren't surprised to see that the immune response was stronger in younger people because you often see that, but I'm told they also had to look closely at whether that led to more reactogenicity or kind of how you feel after you get the shot. And so far, uh, well tolerated is what we are hearing. Now, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, saying they plan to submit these data to the FDA as a proposed amendment to their emergency use authorization in the coming weeks and to other regulators around the world with the hope of starting to vaccinate this age group before the start of next school year. Additionally, the company is also moving into younger groups last week, starting a clinical trial in ages 5 to 11, and next week, planning to move down to ages 2 to 5, and ultimately, uh, as young as six months, Tyler. And so a lot wow. of parents hoping for vaccine wow. protection for their kids. This is coming. Those six-month-old infants are going to have a sore arm, let me tell you, because I, I sure did. Let me ask you a couple <laughs> of questions here, if I might. Uh, you said that the sample group here was 2,200 or thereabouts. Is that a large number for a test of this sort? Is that a common uh, a number? And are, is that sample divided 50% placebo and 50% receiving the vaccine or not necessarily? I believe it was one-to-one, -one, just like we saw mm -hmm. in the uh, adult trials. I'll have to double-check those numbers for you. And it is a relatively large study, although, of course, we know that the vaccines were tested in 30,000-person studies for those overall efficacy figures in older folks. Um, so this is a fraction of that, but we know enough about the vaccines. They really were looking to see that they were well-tolerated and that they generated this immune response and that it it turned out it even seemed to be stronger than the immune response in people ages 16 to 25. Uh, and so they're getting the answers that they need to bring this to the FDA. That's fantastic. Meg, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Meg Terrell, good to see you. All right, still ahead, Goldman Sachs following in Morgan Stanley's footsteps and looking to open up Bitcoin investments to certain clients. We will dig into the details on that. And don't miss CNBC's Race and Opportunity special tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Amid the rise in anti-Asian violence in the U.S., we will look at the economic and social challenges 
facing the Asian American community and talk to business leaders, including the director of Crazy Rich Asians, John Chu, former Avon CEO, Andrea Young, and the fashion designer, Philip Lim. That's tonight at 8 p.m. The Exchange. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Goldman Sachs joining the ranks of the big banks to jump on the Bitcoin bandwagon. CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Son uh, broke the news today. Uh, he spoke with Mary Rich, Goldman's incoming global head of digital assets for its wealth management division. She says the bank intends to offer a, quote, full spectrum of crypto investment vehicles to its wealthiest clients. And Hugh joins us now with more. How wealthy do you have to be to want to be one of these uh, wealthiest of the Goldman clients? Yeah, I mean, typically in the private wealth management group, it's, you know, it's 25 million and up, you know, for this is for individuals as well as foundations, you know, in some cases, family offices. So it's not just individuals. But yes, it's you have to be pretty wealthy. So when she says a full spectrum of products for this class, what does that mean? What kinds of products are we talking yeah. about beyond the basic ability to buy and sell Bitcoin in your portfolio? So, Tyler, I mean, we have the contours of their intent and we know this is going to happen uh, or that they plan for this to happen in the second quarter, which is obviously right right here. So, um, you know, they're talking about an array of, of different exposures. So if you want to own uh, what they call physical Bitcoin, which obviously is, you know, it's kind of a funny term. But if you want to directly own Bitcoin, you should be able to do that through their through through the, the vehicles they talk about. You should be able to invest in traditional funds. And if you want to have derivative exposure, if you want to, to, you know, to own, uh, you know, a bet on the direction of Bitcoin, if you want to short it, I think that ultimately will all be part of what you could do. And it's not just Bitcoin. They want to be very clear. They're sort of, you know, they want to have a larger umbrella than just BTC. They're also looking at anything to do with blockchain, anything to do with digital assets. I would presume that includes Ethereum and other uh, other names. So so now, Hugh, it seems to me that this has raised eyebrows in part because formerly Goldman and certain high level people at Goldman, I think the head of their wealth management uh, business included, uh, were not favorable toward Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies at all. Yeah, no, Tyler, you hit on something that's really key that we haven't talked about yet, which is this push and pull not only within uh, you know, specific firms like Goldman, but really just Wall Street at large. And, and there are plenty of people you can find who just think it's uh, you know, a story that's not going to end well or it's, it's based on nothing. And, and so the, CI, the chief investment officer of, of private wealth management that you re- refer is well known for her skepticism of Bitcoin, not an appropriate asset class, not a store of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not new. Not new. I, I think what this shows, though, is you know, at the end of the day, on Wall Street, the client's client demand comes first. If the client's asking for it, and enough, a critical mass of clients are asking for it, then you know, then you, you better you better you know cater to these guys because you know this is not something they can afford to just ignore. Well, there's no place uh, more so than than Wall Street where money talks. And if you, and and this is really a 180 because I believe that person to whom you referred said it just was not appropriate for investors. Bitcoin not appropriate for investors. Now the demand is there, and so. Presto changeo, uh, there you go, right? Yeah, look, I mean, there's nothing else to say. It, it's a capitulation, right? You know, so y- you've had Wall Street, and I think the feeling on Wall Street was they were hoping that it would sort of go away. But the fact that it's, it's it, you know, it, it's existed and it's it continuing mm-hmm. to exist 
from the previous boom and bust in the 2017-2018 time cycle to the current boom. And, you know, the fact that people people have there's sort of two buckets right. of interest. You know, when you talk to the, to the rich clients, one thinks this is a hedge against hyperinflation, which, you know, all the money printing that's happening, you know, I guess there's a narrative there. Right. And the other is this is the dawn of a new Internet. Right. And we're at the very start of it. And let me get into this somehow. And, you know, let me call my Goldman right. uh, financial advisor and, right. and get invested. Got to leave it there, Hugh. Thank you very much. Hugh Son, thank you for breaking that news. That does it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, the Coca-Cola CEO, James Quincy, will uh, join us to discuss the company's response to that new Georgia voting rights bill and the boycotts it's facing. The company's headquarters, of course, in Atlanta. I'll join Courtney Reagan, Reagan on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 